I know you have heard this before. Work smarter, not harder. Ford has heard it too. That's why the Ford F-150 truck helps you get the job done in the smartest way possible. I mean, the pro-access tailgate alone is a game changer. It improves access to the bed and cargo, which makes it easier to load in tight spaces. See? Smarter. It's also got a mobile power source and pro power on board, so you can power up to 7.2 kilowatts outside your F-150 truck. That is definitely working smarter. And imagine what you can do with that power at your next tailgate party. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates, national average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. The Jericho Network on Westwood One. All right, this is the big one. Episode 200 is here. And for such a huge milestone, I've got a huge guest. Probably the biggest mainstream star that I've had on Talk is Jericho in the last 200 episodes. A man who does not do interviews anymore. A man who barely does any type of in-the-spotlight performances. He spent a couple of years doing the news for Saturday Night Live. Voted the best news desk reporter in Saturday Night Live history. He spent a couple of years co-hosting Monday Night Football not voted the best commentator in Monday Night Football history. He's been in movies, hosted the MTV Video Music Awards, very strong opinion about Donald Trump running for president, political pundit, comedian, actor, legendary figure. Yeah. You want to know who it is? Drum roll, please. Dennis Miller ringing in episode 200 with me, and we're talking about all of those things I mentioned and so much more. He's got great stories about Dan Aykroyd, his own SNL audition, what happened one year also at the MTV Music Awards with uh, uh, one of the Gallagher's from Oasis and Mike Tyson. Uh, A great conversation. You're going to love it. Like I said, a guest you would not expect to be number 200. I did a lot of work to get Dennis, and he is a coveted, coveted interview in mainstream Hollywood. Larry King didn't get him. Chris Hardwick didn't get him. Chris Jericho got him, and he's right here on Talk is Jericho. It's episode 200. Going to get right to Dennis, but first, we're going to get you hooked up with a free DDP yoga program signed by my friend and DDP yoga creator, Diamond Dallas Page. All you got to do is tweet your personal DDP yoga success stories to at Talk is Jericho on the Twitter and use the hashtag podcast one. One winner will be chosen to get the free DDP yoga program autographed by Dallas. DDP yoga is more than just a workout program. It's a healthier way of life. It's already helped tens of thousands of people. You guys know how much it's helped me. I wouldn't be in the ring or on stage with Fozzie if not for DDP yoga working and going crazy on the stage at the highest of levels. You know what it did for Chris Jericho, for Jake the Snake Roberts. Uh, another example, DDP and DDP yoga literally saved Jake's life. And you can see that for yourself in the new documentary, The Resurrection of Jake the Snake. Dallas and director Steve Yu brought Jake to Atlanta, worked with him for three years. 
film Jake's journey to get his life back on track, to reunite with his family and work through his emotional issues to get back in the wrestling business, reclaim his amazing career. If DDP Yoga has helped you in the same way that has helped Jake the Snake Roberts, or even in a smaller way, let me know. I want you to tweet your DDP story to uh, at Talk is Jericho. Use the hashtag podcast one, and you could win a copy of the DDP Yoga program autographed by Diamond Dallas Page himself. That's right. Just tweet me your DDP Yoga story at Talk is Jericho. Use the hashtag podcast one, and you have a chance to win an autographed DDP Yoga program. Now remember, a winner will be Schwab at random and you still got time to experience your own ddp yoga story because ddp has given you guys yeah you listeners sexy beast listeners of talk is jericho a great deal in ddp yoga just go to ddpyoga.com slash jericho to take advantage ddpyoga.com slash jericho ddp yoga changes lives and i should know because it changed mine go check it out and do it today talk is jericho baby Welcome to the 200th episode of Talk is Jericho. We are still and always will be the pot of thunder and rock and roll. The People's Podcast has arrived. The remedy for boredom is here. And let's go for a ride with Dennis Miller, the 200th guest here on Talk is Jericho. And it's great to have you. You can tell my voice is a little bit uh, rough. We have a day off today. I'm currently in Southampton, uh, England. The Cinderblock Party Tour has just been insane. The the uh, European shows are great. But something about the UK, man. UK crowds, always a little crazier for Fozzie. Had a great time in London, Manchester, Southampton, Reading, Tunbridge Wells. But I think so far the craziest crowd of all has been in Chester, uh, close to Liverpool. Congratulations to all of you uh, who are there. And congratulations to all of you who are here with me on the 200th episode. Hard to believe it's been two years since uh, my very first guest, Stone Cold Steve Austin, who I still have to thank for hooking me up with the uh, opportunity to do Talk is Jericho in the first place. He's the one who brought it to my attention. He's the one who brought it up to his boss, Norm Pattis, the uh, founder of Podcast One. want to thank Norm for uh, helping me get this started for a great, great relationship with him. And thanks to my amazing producer, Stacey Para, who has produced every single episode of Talk is Jericho and will continue to produce every episode as long as I have a say in it. I want to take a quick look back at the last 100 episodes um, first guest, Stone Cold Steve Austin, uh, 100th guest, Paul Stanley, 200th guest, Dennis Miller. If that doesn't tell you the diversity of this show, uh, I think that the proof is in the pudding right there. And it's funny when I said that Dennis is going to be the 200th guest and people are like, what, what do you mean? Dennis Miller, we wanted cheeseburger, you know, or somebody like that. You know, this is not a wrestling podcast. I love wrestling, but it's not the only thing that, uh, I'm interested in by far. This show has become a real kind of a patchwork quilt of all the different things I'm interested in. And the biggest thing I'm interested in from doing this show is just having interesting guests on. And I'm going to pick up some of my favorite highlights and tell you a couple stories. The, actually, the, the 101st guest was Ryback, who actually got his career a little bit back on track after he did the Talk is Jericho episode with me, where uh, Vince McMahon heard him talking and said, well, this guy can do promos, and we should be doing more with him, and it kind of opened up Ryback's career, so that was a pretty cool, and obviously having Hulk Hogan on, episode 106 and 107, 
monumental. I think it was the first podcast to have Hulk on. He's been through a lot of turmoil over the last year, but he was a great guest on Talk is Jericho, and hopefully I'll have him back on again at some point. Lemmy. Great stories from Lemmy. I'd always heard that Lemmy in episode 108, I'd always heard that Lemmy was very quiet uh, as an interview and was hard to kind of get answers from. Did not have that issue with Lemmy at all. He was a great, great uh, interviewer. Went to his house, hung out there for a couple hours, had uh, smoked some cigarettes. Haven't smoked a cigarette in probably 25 years, but when Lemmy offers you a cigarette in his house, you drink it. Had some vodka and just told some great stories and listened to him. Um, the Usos were amazing. Episode 109. I know I'm kind of just going episode by episode, but Wade Barrett, episode 112, still my highest rated episode, which is very strange, but still a great one. Andy Beersack from the Black Veil Brides, episode 114 was a, was a great guest. Uh, Ghost Adventures, Zach Baggins, 115, told a lot of cool stories. Sean Michaels, episode 116, 117. They were really, really good as well. So if you haven't heard a lot of these shows, go back and listen to them all. And you'll hear some great stories. Gene Simmons, episode 127. That was already that long ago. Gene was great. And the next week, followed by Cheech Marin. He was hilarious. Telling Cheech and Chong stories, which are always, always cool to hear. I loved having Joss McDermott on from The Walking Dead. He was at 133, kind of opening up the uh, floodgates a little bit to doing more than just the wrestling and music. Having uh, a guy from such a huge, huge show like Walking Dead on was a really cool thing. Monday Night War is Bischoff versus Pritchard, episode 137. I really enjoyed that one because I, I really chased it to get that that episode down and kind of hearing those two guys tell the different perspectives uh, perspectives on what it was like to be in the middle of the uh, of those crazy wars back in those days in front of a live audience was was a really um, interesting episode for sure. Then we had a Vanilla Ice episode 152. Kind of a dark horse. I didn't expect. I didn't know what to expect from Ice, but he was an excellent guest. If you haven't heard Ice, you should go back and listen to it. Really, um, kind of a, a motivational type of a guy, which I really enjoyed having him on. Randy Bly, one of my favorite guests, telling about his uh, crazy experience in a Czech prison for thirty-seven days, right when his book Dark Days came out. That was episode one sixty. Um, a lot of times I travel to get these guys and, and track them down around the world. And Randy and I happened to cross paths briefly in New York, literally for like two hours. I drove from Pittsburgh to New York, interviewed him and flew to LA right afterwards. So, um, and then one of my all time favorites, 163 Stuart Copeland, hall of fame drummer of the police telling some killer stories about staying in the police and just a really, really smart, intelligent guy I could listen to him talk about anything. Uh, and it would be cool. He could read the phone book and I would like it. I think new day was hilarious. Episode 166 kind of helped them break out of the pack a bit, get a lot of feedback about Sasha banks, 168. I believe that might've been her first podcast, but uh, I learned a lot about Sasha. I didn't really know much about her. I just knew that she was kind of one of the up and coming, coming new uh, superstars in the WWE, one of the new divas, and I really got to know her and had some fun with that. Bruce Dickinson from Iron Maiden, episode 175, and then Paul Stanley returning 176, and Carrie King 177. It was three weeks of music talk, or three episodes of music talk, and all those guys gave me some great, great stories. And once again, did all of them in person. I did Bruce in New York City. I did Paul Stanley at his house talking about the classic live 40th anniversary of Kiss Alive, and then I did Kerry King uh, in Jacksonville at Welcome to Rockville when Fozzie got rained out, but Slayer did not. We had a great podcast afterwards. 
Eli Roth telling some great stories about the Green Inferno. That was episode 181, one of the uh, coolest movies I've seen in a while. I'd have to say one of my favorites out of the whole last 100 episodes is 184, the Jericho 25th anniversary, done in New York City after my uh, classic match with Kevin Owens at Madison Square Garden, the 25th anniversary exactly of the career of Chris Jericho. It was myself, Lance Storm, Lenny St. Clair, and Don Callis laughing our asses off for close to two hours telling stories about the old days. I got. Uh, I want to really get Don Callis back on, and I want to get Lenny St. Clair on to tell some more great stories from those early days in, uh, in the wrestling world. Dudley Boys at 186 were also really cool, opening up to uh, returning to the WWE and telling some stories about that. And I also liked uh, 192, where Avenged Sevenfold, um, M. Shadows, introduced the new Avenged Sevenfold drummer, Brooks Wackerman. That was a live press release, basically done on my show. It was only announced on my show and the big surprise announcement. So uh, people are really starting to get into using Talk is Jericho for their own uh, purposes, which I always love. Doc McGee, live from the Kiss Cruise, 194. Some great, great stories. Still love the Scorpion stories. Rudolph Shanko wearing the ridiculous stage clothes. Coming out and telling Doc, uh, looking at his clothes and going, yes. And Doc going, no. <laughs> the Eddie Guerrero tribute, episode 195, with Chavo Guerrero, Dean Malenko, and myself, discussing our uh, dear, dear friend Eddie Guerrero. It was another, another great one. And uh, leading all the way up to here with Dennis Miller. So if you have missed any of those episodes that I spoke about, and there's a hundred more before that, but like I said, my mission statement with talk is Jericho is to have a great show, every show. And I can honestly say there isn't one show that I didn't like. There were some that weren't as good as others. Some that were a little bit, eh, okay, but everybody I think that I've had on has had some great, great perspectives, some great stories, and have been uh, interesting. Some completely over-the-top amazing, some so-so. But if you like Chris Jericho and you like Talk is Jericho, I guarantee you'll like probably every episode. So if there's some that you're missing, go back and listen to them. If you've heard all of them, all 200 episodes, I thank you so much for being with me from the start. I've got a lot more to go. I just signed a new deal with Podcast One. I will be here for at least another year, if not more. And I will do my best to continue to travel the world to get some of the best guests, some that you know, some that you don't, uh, some from wrestling, music, acting, paranormal, comedians, sports stars, Whatever it is that I think is interesting to me, if you like me and you like this show and like what I do, trust me, I am only going to get better and have more diverse guests to clue you guys in on what's up everywhere uh, in entertainment. Uh, and uh, that's uh, that's my goal. And I'm, I'm going to continue that with Dennis Miller. Like I said, a lot of people want Dennis on their show. He's one of the most famous kind of political pundits, comedians, stand-up, everything you could expect, uh, hosts, uh, personality. And he doesn't do any podcasts. He doesn't do any shows, but he's doing this one. It's a huge 200th episode, and I'm excited to bring Dennis out. All right, so uh, we are here in Malibu, Dennis Miller and myself, in a fancy pants um, boardroom. It's actually the boardroom uh, by the beach, it's called here. So, uh, perfect place. You get fired here. Life's pretty good. <laughs> I've, I've been in more imposing boardrooms than this. <laughs> well, it's funny, too, because when you said that we, we would do this, a lot of times if it's with guys that I kind of know or whatever, maybe we'll just meet in a hotel room or something. I'm like, I can't tell Dennis Miller to meet me in a hotel room. <laughs> it's not worthy of his stature. I have to get a boardroom. No, no, that's the John DeLorean interview. What's interesting, though, is I'm 
I'm going to a friend's birthday party tonight. It's at Nobu. Yeah. And literally after coming down here from Santa Barbara, I find out I think Nobu's the next building over. Right? It's literally because I, I Googled like a place close to Mo- Nobu and it's not any, it's getting closer than that. So it worked out great. Well, good to see you again, man. Yeah. Have you heard anything you. on our show? I have not heard anything about it yet, but I heard they really liked the chemistry of the panel. Yeah, on we the, got on pretty well. It was good. We did a. a, a, a have you told them on your podcast yet? About no, I, I haven't mentioned it yet. So this is a perfect it was, time. It was for called it. again. What, what does it America called, think? Or the, I think that's probably what it was America's called. America's best. America's best ever. Which I think they're going to change because of Neil Patrick Harris had the audacity to name a show similar to that that actually got picked up. Doogie's got clout, man. <laughs> Doogie's right got clout, man. So yeah, so it was like a pop culture kind of panel show, and it was you and I and Finesse Mitchell and I can't remember Cara Santa Maria. Santa Maria. Yeah, she was like a, a like a literally a brain surgeon. She was. She told me. Uh, she said next week I'm. Uh, being the announcer on live brain surgery. I said, well, this is not that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but it was funny, though, because you and I were sitting kind of on our side of the table. I felt like we were in the back of the classroom just making our just own jokes to each other, stuff. right? Yeah, it was fun. <laughs> My favorite. Well, I'm glad they dug the chemistry, at least. Well, and that's the first, that's the first most important thing when you do a show like that. Yeah, we were know. pretty good quintet. I don't know much about finesse, man. He was on SNL for three years, but I... Uh, he was. I, Not know, overlapping. Since I left, it's like, you, you know, you don't watch your high school that much. Or something. <laughs> yeah. So do you ever watch SNL at all? Just turn it on in the background or something? Once in a while when they get a, a, a new anchor, mm-hmm. I like to see the new news anchor. And uh, my son interned there for a year. Really? We were like religious. <laughs> for some reason, when you're vested in it, you know, you never miss. Yeah. Um. But I would say maybe once or twice a year uh, to just see how, you know, the um, Lauren or, you know, how his endeavors are doing, but not that much anymore. Because you were actually voted like the best anchor of all time. Well, that was very nice of them. And, uh, you know, um, you know, those are some, (laughs) you know, Chevy invented it, let's face facts. Yeah. uh, Norm, Tina Fey. I mean, you know, I was flattered that they uh, picked me. But uh, I, I do remember uh, I had an interesting moment when I started where, you know, when you first start there, I don't know, when you first started in your endeavor and all of a sudden you're like on the show like mm-hmm. with the big guys wrestling or it was like you meet famous people and you're kind of like still a little freaked out. You're trying to bluff it through and act like, yeah, I'm on a set. I don't know. But, you know, you meet Chevy. And I remember Chevy the first time I met him saying to me, be like a news anchor, develop a character, and be that character. And I remember coming from stand-up comedy, I remember thinking, I'm going to take a different tact on this. I didn't have the cojones to tell Chevy that. Cause, yeah. You know, you just nod and you smile. Right, yes, yeah, yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. But I remember thinking, for better or for worse, I've got to work this like stand-up, sitting down, where I tell the joke, and if the joke scores, I revel in it a little. And if the joke dies, I give them a wink and a nod that I know it's died. Mm-hmm. And I'm sort of like, for better or for worse, and believe me, my name meant nothing at the beginning, so I'm not saying this self-aggrandizingly, I'm going to be Dennis Miller. Whereas Chevy sort of, you know, he played the news guy. All well, yeah, yeah, he was playing a news guy. But that, that's, a, that's a really interesting thing for, for a stand-up comedian, when the joke dies, yeah. to almost make that a joke. Well, the... More importantly than making it a joke, you can't betray the trust of the people who you want to go with you for the for an hour, for instance, on stage. If they think that you're so unaware or feigning that you're unaware of a bad joke, 
they sort of desert you. It's like loyalty. They think, mm-hmm. oh, this guy's not really connecting with me. I remember thinking it's kind of presumptuous to sit at Saturday Night Live's news desk. The very nature of it, I'm not saying me. I'm just saying anybody. You've got to look like you're, you're confident. And part of confidence is looking at them when something goes up in smoke and saying, yeah, I guess they can't all work. (laughs) That is an intoxicant. Uh, More than making uh, great humor off it, which Carson obviously was was the man. I was going to say, he was the best at it. Yeah, absolutely. All the moves were done, though. I remember. (laughs) Fixing the tie. Yeah, you couldn't do his. All the moves were done. (laughs) I notice even when I'm on O'Reilly now, at the beginning of my O'Reilly's each week, I'll do the Karnak thing. (laughs) But I've always stipulated it's sort of, I don't know, guys of my era don't know what other moves to do because he (laughs) sort of invented all the cool in the moment moves. Was he one of your influences? Yeah. Um, When I was young, just watching. there were two guys, oddly enough, one quintessentially national, Johnny Carson, who was everybody's guy. But I do remember even as a kid, before I realized the trappings of uh, comedy, thinking, wow, it's cool how he dances away when it doesn't work. You know, because he was sort of debonair, Johnny, when you look back on him. It was oh, sure. It was funny. Some nights he'd wear scarves. And <laughs> that early was very 70s. of the era. <laughs> Big, uh, blocky suits and bell bottoms. But he always had the cool hair. And he always looked in the moment. And, you know, he'd always come back. He was sneaking the smoke. It was sort of like a, a hipster thing. And uh, I, 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 even as a young kid, remember thinking, Wow, he really makes hay when it doesn't go well. And you know, he would he had Ed to play off of. You know, sure. it's always a nice thing to look over at your sort of ex-marine drunken Greek chorus guy. <laughs> you know, which I always thought Ed functioned as, although he wasn't. Yeah, I think he and Johnny off off uh, the clock would imbibe. Right. But, you know, it takes a sharp thing to have that sort of wink and a. It was and almost not an right? extent. Yeah, it was beautiful how they worked in tandem. Um, the other guy who influenced me. Oddly enough, I guess every town has a creature feature. I, I think my wife was a big fan of uh, the scary movies when you were young, weren't you? The late night Yeah, the yeah. late night guy. Yeah. I grew up in Pittsburgh, and the late night guy was a guy named Chili Billy Cardilly, Bill Cardill. <laughs> he also did the wrestling. How funny. That, oh, really? Uh, he was the like local nonce. Yeah, the host with Bruno mm-hmm. and all those guys that you and I talked about yeah. that day. And wrestling was huge in Pittsburgh. Well, because Bruno San Martino yeah. was the man, and Bill Cardill was the, uh, uh, the the impresario hosted every event, and he also did the late night thing. And I just thought there was nothing cooler to me. Although when you get old, you find out they tape it at like two o'clock in the afternoon <laughs> on a Thursday. But <laughs> yeah, when you're a kid, it's, it's Saturday live. at eleven thirty. Yeah. You know, and uh, so it's funny. One night they were doing a thing. In New York at the Museum of Broadcasting, and hardly a huge event. They honor a lot of people. They wanted to show some of your work, and they asked me who my influences were, and I said the same answer. I said Johnny Carson, where they had plentiful tape on him. And I said there was a Pittsburgh guy who always made me think showbiz looks fun named Bill Cardill. And to my great delight, uh, they they, they must have had a comprehensive... uh, researcher they tracked him down oh yeah and asked for old tapes that he had they didn't have video or digital i'm sure he had literally reel to reels 
and they ran some of it at the thing. Miller said this man was an influence, and they, people must have been watching. It. It was a guy in a tux, <laughs> yeah. and then this one, Lon Chaney, and uh, but he sent me a very nice note. I had never met him. It was quite a thrill. That must for have me. been cool for him too. Like he never even knew that you, you yeah, had been influenced I mean, by him. I always thought that it must be not just because it's me that uh, there's all those little kids out there watching, and you make a dent on them. Yeah, he sent me a very nice note with his phone number. I called and talked, and we became uh, I, I wouldn't say good friends, but at least acquaintances. <laughs> yeah. And he's still out there. The guy is uh, much like many of the characters in the movies. He's never ending. <laughs> He's become a mummy yeah, now. He's, he must be 90, 95 now, but he's still going strong. Did you ever do uh, Carson when Johnny was yeah, on? Yeah, okay. three times with Johnny, and it was very heady. Um, a, a few things in your career really stick in your head where you feel like you're in classic show business. Um, Dana Carvey and I and Richard Lewis once, uh, our first time we headlined Las Vegas, and you drive down the strip, and there's your name at Caesar's Palace, and that's like, yeah, you know, you work in your Rat Pack fantasy. <laughs> and the other one is Carson. I mean, uh, the first time I went on, I did not meet him beforehand, but then the two times after that, and I, I always feel blessed I got three. I always think, God, some people just never even got there in yeah. time to be with him. And I had my mother out once, and she was in my dressing room with me, and, uh, you know, cursory knock. The Tonight Show, and he's Johnny Cosh, and so he's going to stand outside and <laughs> yeah. just Can like come in? whap. Right. That head comes; it's like the most famous head in the world. <laughs> and I'm looking at my mother, who, you know, she's like, "Yeah." He steps in. He's like, going to be funny tonight, kid. You know, in that cadence. <laughs> <laughs> I said, "I'll try my best." He said, "Don't call me Mr. Carson." <laughs> it was just cool, and you know, he was the. Uh, I never did stand-up on the show with him. Oh, really? Because I was on SNL already, and you kind of get in. If it, Listen, stand-up's a tough beast. If they say to you, you can just come out and sit down if you want. Yeah. Thank you very much. Because that was the big thing. If Carson yeah. called you on the couch yeah. after your stand-up, it could make, a, make so your I career. I never even yeah. had that story, but yeah. <laughs> uh, I do know that's true. I mean, it's uh, they, they would often say that your price in a comedy club would triple, you know, if Johnny called you over. But uh, very nice guy. And then years later, when he had quit, I was doing Monday Night Football for two years, and he wrote uh, he wrote a piece, his first thing that he had written since he retired. He'd, he had appeared at a Teacher of the Year award ceremony. This is the only public appearance he made, and then he wrote something in the New Yorker called The Laws of Physics as per Dennis Miller. And he hmm. did my jargon-laden, weird simile stuff. You know, water runs uphill. And what's that hell happens to be Pompeii? And there's a magma slide coming. You know, it's like some <laughs> yeah. really yeah. where he had taken the, listen, I know it's a bit of a monkey trick, but he had taken that equation that I would use. I used to always think when I was at SNL and I was running empty or on fumes, I had a big poster on my wall that, put up, uh, that I put up that said, uh, indignation. What am I? Arcane reference. And whenever I'd get really trapped, I'd, <laughs> I'd say, all right, what's pissing me off? Those are your three go-tos. Yeah. Uh, George Judson's, you know, I mean, <laughs> it was almost like uh, 
when you were in a bind, at least you had an equation to go to. And he's, he must have Case just of fire, gleaned break that. Glass, yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's what it was like. <laughs> it was Friday at 9.30 at night, you're right, where you think, well, I guess the sword's not coming out of the stone. I, I better pound out some iambic pentameter here to get the check. And he sort of gleaned that, and he wrote these funny rules of physics, and I was quite flattered by that. Did you write a lot of uh, all that stuff on SNL? Yeah, um, after um, the first three weeks, I was, you know, when you're first there, you're completely at their mercy. Mm -hmm. But um, as it should be, I mean, they don't know you from Adam, and everybody contributed. But I remember thinking in my head, I know how to write jokes for myself, but I can't. You would be too bodacious to go in and say, I'd prefer to write these. Mm -hmm. So you have to take... Now, they had a bunch of problems that first year. We had, I look back, they had an interesting cast, but they sort of misplaced pieces, you know, like where the it wasn't cohesive. You know, sometimes when you watch a sports team, there are role players, mm -hmm. table setters. We had a bunch of home run hitters, as it turns out, in movies. Robert Downey Jr., I mean, who's the bigger star in the world? <laughs> right. Michael Anthony Hall at that point was actually bigger than Robert Downey Jr. because he had come off 16 candles and all that. Randy Quaid, who now seems to have gone... Upcountry, Ella Kurtz, and Apocalypse Now. But at the time, you, you know, Randy Quaid was in the yeah. last detail. He was a yeah. great actor. He was huge. Yeah. And Cousin Eddie. And Joan Cusack, who ended up being, you know, we had a... That's amazing, just those four names. You forget that they were, they were even on They were even on this. Yeah. So, um, you, you know, like, the, the as I said, the first three weeks, anybody could hand jokes in. But that cast, as... as uh, Listen, as talented and great and, and as those parts are, it wasn't quite cohesive. Mm -hmm. So they were putting out fires all over the place. And I remember at some point, um, they just sort of weren't handing jokes in. And I had it covered with a brilliant guy named Herb Sargent. He had been there since the first Saturday Night Live. And uh, he was a, a great old pro. I mean, a wickedly funny guy. New New York inside out. He was like... Uh, I always felt when I was with Herb, I had some sort of pretension to savoir faire because he was really a cool New York guy like <laughs> Pete Hamill, Breslin. He'd take you to Elaine's. He'd scrambled eggs and onions late at night. And you always felt <laughs> you were in the game. You know, Herb knew Dorothy Parker and the Algonquin guys. And he was the coolest, mellowest. I mean, I loved him with all my heart. And he helped me immensely. And we would get together on Friday. And I would find that if I tried to write jokes earlier in the week, I uh, I needed the fear or the adrenaline as a catalytic factor. It would it would make it frisson for me. Mm -hmm. uh, earlier in the week, I was always sort of, if something really popped into my head, just a flat out one liner, I'd write it down. But I I, I I had to be buttressed up against the abyss to start really cranking. <laughs> and Herb and I figured out our drill, and he was a master joke writer, but also with an exacto knife, he knew everything that would lead to a joke. And I'd come into his office on Friday afternoon around 3 or 4, and he had cut out like 100 articles from the oddest publications, all the way from what at the time was still the paper of record, the New York Times. I, I think it's fallen, but at that mm -hmm. time it was all the way down to the Inquirer, the Star, Alien Babies, and stuff like that. Yeah. And I would sit next <laughs> to him, and he would just hold them up. And, you know, if he had an idea, it wasn't just like uh, Rorschach test, but kind of, you know, he, he had ideas. He said, what about we do this here? But mainly he would hold it up. We had a tape recorder going, and I'd sort of riff on a joke. And then he'd take the riff and uh, 
He was great. And right. that's usually the way it goes. If you can think of something within 10 right. seconds, it's always good. Right. You have to that's think the too way long. we thought of it, Chris. Forget it, right? Yeah, if you get mired in it. And we got to the point where we trusted each other enough that even if it was the worst, clumsiest instinct... You know, like a joke that you would look back on and go, what? <laughs> we wouldn't kill it right off the bat, you know? We'd uh-huh. uh, let it simmer for, I'd say the thing, or he'd say, what about this? And then, and by, I'd say, 8 o'clock at night, around four hours, we'd have a bunch of jokes. And then we'd meet again Saturday morning, and if anything had happened overnight, we'd update it. And then uh, at dress rehearsal, we'd probably do 30 jokes if we needed 20. And whatever, 10, at that point, it gets very Darwinian. It's survival of the fittest. Mm -hmm. Kind of infrequently, I think you should take a joke out on the Saturday Night Live that's what you would deem for the cognoscenti. I think it helps your pedigree if periodically people are kind of reaching up to a joke. But you have to think about it. Yeah, Yeah. but you don't want to do too many of those. You know, that's where you end up missing the point. Mm -hmm. It's not like a... It's not like leisure domain or where you're trying to trick them. They want to be along for the ride. But it is intoxicating once in a while to get a joke that maybe five people in the crowd laugh at. And then you pause on it for a second. And then the others go, oh, oh, I see that. And, <laughs> and others are laughing even if they don't get it. Yeah, it's sort of a, a mix because it is Saturday Night Live. And it's supposed to be our Algonquin table, you know, the hippest room. And you can't make it too accessible or they start to think, I'm watching even at the improv mm, here. You interesting, know? yeah. And Lauren always gave you that. Lauren was smart that way. Um, he uh, he would kill sketches sometimes that were so funny, and you'd think, wow, I, how do where do we get off doing that? Not a lot, but once in a while, he would he he would deem it too. And he would say the name of another show, which I need not go into, but mm-hmm. he had a show that he did not like, and he would always disparage it. It's too that. It's and too then dumb he'd put and dumb things earlier. in, like, I remember watching a sketch one night that was so arduous, but in retrospect, isn't it funny? It's, it stays with me all these years later. It was called um, Thanksgiving on Jupiter. And it was about, it was, a, it was a look. It was a brilliant look. It was Jim Downey wrote it, who was a genius. And uh, it was a compressed dining room. It was only like a, f- uh, a foot high. <laughs> okay, right. And everybody's in at this little flat table like you'd encounter in a Japanese restaurant where you're all sitting. And, <laughs> and the whole thing was based on um, the amplified gravity of Jupiter. And the whole the four-minute sketch was, <laughs> can I have the green beans? And then the other person went, <laughs> and the green beans would get there, and you'd say, I was actually in it. I didn't know how I got in it, but I guess nobody else. And they'd nobody say, got it. thanks to the green beans. Can I have the corn? And then it was another minute. And this is on like at five to one. And yeah. people were literally uh, <laughs> like looking at it. Like, what are you doing? But it's funny to me that I look back on that, and I think, I guess they don't see that anywhere else. It's not like laughing or, you know, right, where yeah. everything's sort of. It's one of those rules of comedy, too. The repetition is what makes you laugh. Like, after, like, the fifth time of trying to push, now you're trying to push yeah, the stuffing. There was a nervous You're probably starting to get into to it. it. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. But he was also very smart about all the accoutrements of the comedy. Um, Lauren was like, you know, when you read books about the lost generation or see movies like Midnight in Paris, there's always a, a, a somebody, a hub that the spokes come off of. It was Gertrude Stein for the lost mm-hmm. generation. And uh, she would always, 
you read her writing, and I've only read one thing. I'm not trying to act like I'm an aficionado, but it's it is pretty good. But it's not it's not Hemingway. Yeah. But she was able to take these people and uh, see what they were doing and tweak it just a little. And Lorne, he was he was in comedy when he was younger, but he, he had a brilliant eye and a brilliant ear and a brilliant sense of style. And he would give notes uh, in between dress and air. You had like an hour and a half, two hours. And he would go through and eliminate things and reset the board, uh, what order and all that. And then he'd call you in in his, you know, Lauren's time. And he always reminded me of, like, uh, D'Artagnan or Scaramouche. It was like <laughs> he's very quiet during the week, but then, then he'd get sort of animated and amped in this 40-minute right meeting show we time, had. Yeah. And it was like his show. Yeah. And you'd just sit there and he'd have, like, okay, first sketch. Here's the notes. And he'd start ticking stuff off. And it was stuff like uh, – uh, the, 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 you know, I, I, I just remember the one because we always thought, wow, who's thinking that way? It was a date between Kevin Nealon and Victoria Jackson, and they were in a seafood restaurant. And part of the thing was predicated on, I, I forget the sketch, but. Subliminal man, maybe. Where you, but it's in a seafood, and mm. some of the jokes are about that. And Lorne, I remember him saying, why is the wine red? Why is the wine red? You know, can I have white wine? And I thought, wow, I guess somebody's got to think of that stuff. <laughs> right? You yeah, know yeah. what I mean? And all that underlay. That's interesting. And you look at SNL now, and it must be moving on 42 years. Yeah. And you always wonder, well, why does one thing last, even a good show, last 10 years? I mean, that's a great run. Why does somebody something last 42 years and nobody ever takes a run at it? And it's all those hard drive things. You can buy all the floppy disks you want. But SNL has a hard drive of even when it's not percolating on all cylinders, people know that's where the quality is. That's where all the funny people want to go. That's, mm. And I think that's uh, obviously that's It more. makes your career in, in, in a lot of cases. Jeez. Oh, you, know? you know, it was – I remember being in Detroit and I had auditioned uh, – I, I guess I had auditioned around six weeks before and then I saw the cast announced – in USA Today, and obviously I wasn't in it. I was in Detroit, <laughs> and they had a picture of the cast, new cast. And I was still, I was, uh, I had rhino skin when I was young in show business. Uh, thick skin, you mean? Yeah, yeah. thick. Mm -hmm. Because I, you know, you shouldn't get into it unless you're really yeah. ready to get your ass kicked. That's true. Until you don't get your ass kicked. But in the interim, you you can't take it all that personally. Mm -hmm. So I remember when I saw it, I thought, oh. You know, I'll, I'll get something. Put your head down. Write some jokes. Get it next time. Be better. You know, mm -hmm. it was that sort of thing. I look back on that guy and I go, "Where? Who is that guy?" <laughs> but I could see it, until you get what you need, you're that guy, and it's impossible to hold that sort of rhino skin throughout your but that, rest of your career. But uh, at that moment, I was top. So then I went and did Letterman. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to Go speak ahead. over you. I went in to do Letterman a couple weeks later, and I guess in the interim they had tried John Lovitz as the newscaster. And he, I'm sure he was funny in his own quirky way, but John was so good at his characters and just being an every guy and other things, and it was an, a, a new cast. And they needed to dress him uh, for, like, if he was going to do a master thespian or something. They needed to get him into costume during the news. And he was sometimes in 12 things, and they couldn't afford to uh, – almost like deadheading it. They, they couldn't deadhead him on the news. <laughs> right, they right, needed right. to get him into makeup. At that point, I got – after the Letterman show that night, somebody said, Lorne Michaels would like to see you on – 
uh, 17. That's where the offices were. And, you, you know, 8H is where the studio yeah. is, but his office on 17. And immediately my heart's beating out of my chest. I, I, I know something positive. Lauren's not calling me up as a stranger to say, I just wanted to remind you, you haven't got this. But I thought it would be something writer, uh, maybe a, a gentleman in waiting, yeah, you know, low I, level I, something. Yeah, yeah right. something. And uh, I went up and waited outside his office for on Lauren has a great office because the statue, or I always say Statue of Liberty when I start that, the Empire State Building's over his shoulder and uh, around an hour, 15, hour and a half. He's on Lauren time, put it that way. <laughs> when you're the pharaoh, you're on Lauren time. Uh, his assistant said, Lauren will see you now. And I walked in the door and he had one of those green, you know, you remember these moments like it's like a photograph. Sure. I remember thinking, remember this, brother. And one of those green desk lamps and he has glasses on. And he goes, hey, Dennis, he's there. Uh, would you like to do my news? And I said, yes, I would, sir. And he said, well, I'll see you tomorrow at 10. And I walked out, I'm telling you, Chris, I don't know when you remember the mother load or the this thunder strike. Yeah. I just walked, I coasted out of there. And I remember going and having, I was not a, still to this day, I'm not a big drinker, but I remember going to have a cocktail. <laughs> and we were thinking, you should celebrate this. But I didn't know anybody in New York. And, uh, you know, I, I went across the street and had a cocktail and then showed up the next morning and yeah, like anything, that's when it hits you. You float out, but you float in the next morning, and like this, it's the pressure's on Time you. Time to go to man. work. Yeah, <laughs> but it was. Uh, listen, it's gladiator school. Whenever I watch like those old Demetrius and the Gladiators or Spartacus, I, I remember Jim Downey telling me he was the head writer and a genius and a sweet man. He said uh, he told me a story that Danny. <laughs> It's a great Dan Aykroyd story, and I ended up getting his dressing room, which always blew my mind. And uh, Danny was going to the party once, the the first uh, year of SNL, and it had started out as a uh, just definitely a niche buy for yeah. a young American. All of a sudden, it was the biggest thing in the, in America. Right? Chevy told me buses were stopping, and people were getting out of buses, not tour buses. I mean, like. Stopping on the street to get yeah, the Port Authority buses, yeah. getting out to take pictures with them. Said, <laughs> and you didn't, you didn't know any of this had happened. Mm -hmm. You, you kind of heard there was a buzz that the show was starting to happen. He's there, all of a sudden, people were screaming "Chevy!" and uh, and uh, the parties got huge afterwards. It was like the social event, the place to go. Yeah, those guys ran hard. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I mean, by the time I got there, it was much more family guys and guys. Who Even met. though it was the eighties, because the eighties was. Crazy I'm sure there was a few things going, but I'm telling you, there's yeah. guys like Carvey and I, and I'm not saying we yeah. just weren't like that. Sure, you know, it was wasn't a different craziness. Yeah, yeah, crazy, crazy rock star Belushi type stuff. So Danny gets out of the car one night, and the party's like happening, and it's like 90 degrees in New York, one of those sweltering nights, and somebody has fainted on the red carpet, and John and Danny get out of the car, and they're so loaded, and there's so many cops there that they can't really shut down for empathy. They put their shades on. <laughs> And they like sort of Nuryev over the, the fallen person. The crowd starts booing. <laughs> and Danny said, Hey, if you can't handle a MIG, stay out of MIG Alley. <laughs> I always thought of SNL as MIG Alley. It's like you, 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 you didn't have time to whine there. I don't mm. know. It was like it was hard yeah. and it was pressure. And I remember thinking, Oh, I'm not good with pressure. And I said, Yeah, guess what, brother? You're about to get good with pressure. Cause <laughs> or you're gone. You're gone. Yeah. So you want to wind through this, or you want to get your game face on, and it did. It did glean my game, and I, I got uh, I got harder at it. 
And I de-romanticized it. Mm-hmm. At some point, you gotta you gotta be funny. You're on a funny show, and you can't come in each week ethereal and you know start making Sylvia Plath notes in the margin about your feelings and that. I was like, all right, I I gotta write some jokes here, brother. <laughs> you know, it's amazing to me. There's a real similarity between SNL and WWE. Yeah. Both controlled and created by Vince. Lauren and Vince and both dependent on a, a rotating cast of characters. And that's why... And they're both the show. They're both you, the show. You've been called up to the show. Yeah, yeah. And so you said, be funny. You better put on a good show. You better have a great character, a great personality. Or you're gone because there's too many guys, you know, and, and you get the A-plus guy who leaves to go do something else. You got to find somebody else to replace mm-hmm. him at that. It's a lot of... A lot well, my of, son, who's... Um, both my boys are uh, bright young men. My one son, who's older, is fascinated by uh, the wrestling. And, mm. uh, you know, it would seem, I don't know, you know, he's always reading the brothers. You know, he reads Russian authors. To, and, you know, I say, it's so funny. It's like, uh, it's different than Dostoevsky. And I go, what do you, he's, it's a classic morality play. <laughs> it's a morality play. He's, he's right on with classic. that. It's classic. He's yeah. fascinated by it. It's when you watch the crowd, they rise up, they, they get defeated, the cavalry comes in to the rescue. He's there. It's, it's primal stuff. I remember when you came and hosted, I said this before, I saw you during the day. How are you doing, Dennis? He said, Vince McMahon just gave me advice on how to deliver a comedy line. My life is complete. And he was right. <laughs> I remember the, line, the notes he gave me. I went out and I was a little too cute by a half. And you have to realize that. People's blood is up, and they're mm. ready for it's Circus Maximus. <laughs> and and you came out, you, you know, you, I came out and tried to do Noel Coward, you know, and they, <laughs> they want you to just take the soil. <laughs> you remember Ray Lewis used to do that, right? <laughs> well, he, what did he do? When Ray Lewis played for the Ravens, all the brothers in the league, that's the two years I did it, uh-huh. uh, football, they all love Maximus. He was their guy. <laughs> and if you watch Ray Lewis before he starts doing the dance, every time he came out of the hall, he'd lean down and pick the soil, the and, soil did the, yeah. and run it through his fingers. Thing. <laughs> and uh, I, I should have taken Vince's note because I came out a little dry. And But it was for a good cause. And it was fun. And it was so f- – I'm sorry. I leaned back. It was funny when you go backstage – there are guys sitting there in uh, wrestling outfits about to go out and play uh, the, the villain, and they're reading, like, the yearling and stuff, you know. <laughs> yeah. I told you, Kane and I discussed at length Brave New World by Aldous Huxley. <laughs> Kane's a seven-foot homicidal maniac yeah. with a mask, but he likes Aldous Huxley. I know, he's sitting there cross-legged. <laughs> Hello, Dennis. <laughs> And then 10 minutes later, you see him with a chair or a foreign object. I remember, too, you were like when you finally came back out again after I think DX had won some award and their catchphrase was usually like, if I would have known all I had to do to get a reaction was say, suck it, I would have left all this political stuff at home hours ago. Yeah, suck it was the big term, man. (laughs) So, I mean, but that's the thing. I mean, your your sense of humor is always very, very uh, intelligent. You know, well, that's you, nice of you. But you know what? I, you just get into a groove when you do the weekend update where you're going to write topical jokes. And some mm-hmm. people say it's political. Yeah, it is in, in some instances. But it's also – it's just topical. It's in the, And what's happening in our world now is a political fracas. And, mm-hmm. you know, you report on the uh, – the news, the first thing I wrote were topical jokes, and they just happened to be about politics and stuff like that. But years later, I don't know. It's uh, we're, it's Bill Maher and I have had this talk. I haven't seen Bill in years, but we have had the talk. We're, you're so lucky to carve out any niche where they know you for anything. Right. And Bill and I both 
be it on other sides of the aisle, they go, oh, they talk about current events. Yeah. And current events include politics. Listen, it's hard to carve out any identity. And I've been, what, I've been in show business now for many 30 years or something. I'm, I'm glad I got a hook. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it's You're tough to get a hook. That. Yeah. Yeah. Ah, the sweet sound of sports you love from Sling. The collide of football pads. The squeak of shoes on a basketball court. The crack of the bat on a home run. The slice of skates cutting across the ice. But what about this one? That's the sound of all the sports you love. All at once. Starting at $40 a month. Experience it all live with Sling. Sling. All right, we're talking with Dennis Miller for episode 200 of Talk is Jericho. Now, Dennis, your career resume is so large and expansive, uh, but you've been working nonstop in so many different areas in show business. Well, I've always... um you know what? I never really had the uh, f- a, a good like eye, uh, eye for the far shore. I always viewed show business as like a sort of turbulent lily pond, and I always was looking for the next lily pad. From yeah, like to stay as dry as I could. And uh, I'll be honest, I, I I don't say this I uh, to diffuse any sort of magic in show business but i'm sort of a pragmatist about it i always wanted to make a living off it i like writing jokes uh that pleases me and i found out early on i didn't have the ability to write jokes and hand them to strangers for money to have them tell them so i became my own conduit because it was too i remember writing a joke for a kid once who did it on the tonight show before i, I was still in pittsburgh and he Carson, you know, started hitting the desk. I was thinking, geez, I thought of that. I said, <laughs> I, I can't do this. I yeah. better force myself to tell these. But as far as this big picture thing, man, I have never uh, had a good plan. Um, I've kind of taken things as they come. And sometimes out of my, uh, you know, what people, I don't even think of them as defeats. I think of the worst moment in show business, your worst moment doesn't come within light years of a bad moment in real life you you, you must have kids who come visit you because they're sick because they're yeah yeah those are the real problems yeah, right yeah i mean showbiz is i've had shows shot out from under me and i think people i, I listen i've been whacked for a couple of days at a time or I don't. I think it's a bit uh, narcissistic to let yourself. You know, when I hear stories about, I was devastated for a year. You, you can't be. Man. Mm-hmm. Life gets tougher than that. And like I said, when I did, um, I did a talk show after I left SNL, and it got whacked after six months. It was a syndicated show. I was pretty bummed out. I thought they should have kept it for a little longer. But I got a call from a friend who offered me a job the next day at HBO. It was huge for you. Yeah, and. Uh, I always remember thinking, geez, remember how low you were on that Friday when they whacked you? And then Saturday comes, you get a call, and then the next thing you know, you're 215 episodes into a show that really makes your bones. Mm -hmm. And it's right on the other side of that whacking. So I've been a little better about getting whacked since then. Football, you know, people always think, uh, you know, that you must be devastated. Listen, around two years in, when John Madden left Fox... I knew we were dead. I remember calling Fouts that morning and saying, uh, listen, brother, we're, we're gone. It's like G. Gordon Liddy, just tell me what corner you want me on when you start shooting. I don't want innocence to get hit in the crossfire. And Fouts, he says, but we're picked up for next year. We had 
a two-year pickup, so we were picked up for a third year. I said, I don't care, Madden just left Fox, and I know it's for them to put the dream team together. Ah. And uh, you know what? I would have. I am bad with tenses. I would have done it too. I would have did it too. Mm. Done. done. Yes. Sorry, my Sorry. wife knows. I've got a real blank. I got a real black hole for tenses. <laughs> I would have done it too. He was John Madden, and I always say. If I'm ever in L.A. on any given night and I want to do stand-up comedy at the Improv and John Madden's on stage, they better haul his ass <laughs> off, too. That's the way the world works. Right. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I, Monday Night Football was less of a a bruising than I think people thought. I was just happy to – I couldn't believe I was there. I mean, all of a sudden you're in How the did, booth and you hear dun-dun-dun-dun, yeah. and you're thinking, this is surreal. I'm usually in my undies right now. What was the mindset? You might have been on your undies on the show. We don't know. You were only seated from the – shown from the You know, the worst times I did it in shorts because <laughs> it was so hot in the damn booth. Not when you got the Green Bay, but at the beginning in Tampa Bay, yeah, yeah you'd have a suit on <laughs> right. and be in gym shorts. Edward. But that, that's a very interesting casting to put you in there. That was Olmeyer. Um, I did tell my manager at some point, I said, hey, uh, I think they're trying to put a f Monday Night Football team together. Can you call and see if they're interested in me auditioning? So I, I did push the pebble down the hill. But Olmeyer, who was the, uh, quite frankly, the man who built Monday Night Football, mm -hmm. along with Cosell and Dan, I mean, but he had a hand in that casting, he and Rune. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's the uh, he's the, uh, in the hanging gardens of Babylon. He's Nebuchadnezzar. You know, he's built them. So uh, <laughs> he comes back for a year, and it didn't work out. It was too stressful on his health. But he did stay for a year, and he's the one who hired me. And I remember I got a call. They said they want you to come audition uh, with Al. Uh, and I thought, wow, that'll be fun. So we go out into North Hollywood, way out there. It was like uh, it always reminded me of the – it was like in Boogie Nights where Mark Wahlberg was bussing tables, you know, one of those yeah. way out, way out there. Yeah. <laughs> and we go into this uh, ADR studio where they usually tape, uh, you know, the stuff where people cover yeah, their lines for dialogue, movies. Yeah. So it's a big screen and they go, we're going to run a football game. You sit here with uh, Al. It's a game you'll know. It's from the past and just announce it. And I had a good move because uh, I did know football, and you know, I, you know, I look at the guys I don't know football like Gruden, yeah. And I can see that third spot is very tricky spot. Dan, Dandy Don was a genius at it. He had, he was a mensch when he played, so he knew football. He was a laconic cat. He knew that brevity was served. I'm a little more loquacious and reference uh, laden in mm -hmm. that point. I think sometimes my references help me in that instance. Uh, the way I would look at it in retrospect, if I had to do an autopsy on that, it's the play happens. Al's going to take 10 seconds and announce the play. They're going to throw it to Fouts, and this is just the you, – you might as well put out Arthur Murray footprints at a dance studio. This is the way it's danced. Uh, they're going to throw it to Foutsy for a replay, and he's going to take another 10 to 15 seconds, and then they're going to throw it to you – and uh, the, the play clock's 40 at that point. I think it's 35 now. You've got seven to eight seconds. And you're almost better served. In retrospect, whenever they'd throw it to me, I'd try to shoehorn something. But mm -hmm. you're, new to the, you're new to the gig. You think, hey, they hired you for a reason. You better say something. Shit in, yeah. So you're doing more jokes. 
you're almost better off like hitting fouts on the arm when you're off camera and letting it breathe. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, that third position, and I think Tony Kornheiser, who came after me and did it for three years, so good for him, I did it two years, um, found the same thing. You Less is more, but you don't know that going in. I mean, it's tough to... Yeah, well, you, you you think you're there for uh, to be the, the, to the, be the guy, the, the guy yeah. and I, I can look in retrospect and say less would have been more there. But um, I had a blast. I you know I was there for two years and I dug it. But I do remember thinking uh, it's not. I, I if if they were up if it was up to me I'd have a two man booth. But Olmeyer wanted to try three and it was Olmey's mm-hmm. baby. So I made him laugh a lot. I think I think that's, that's what it was about. So yeah. I'm sitting in this thing and I'm getting laughs. But I remember thinking, you better pull a football move here to show some sort of grasp on the game. Yeah. And, and it was a, a game where they showed a flea flicker. It was beautiful because it just popped into my head. And it was a pretty salient point. The team on offense ran a flea flicker from midfield. Let's say. Now the flea flicker for the uninitiated is sort of a belly series handoff to a guy. He turns and flips it back to the quarterback, and the uh, receiver does a stop and go fly, and the guy throws it down. And I guess the the feeling is that the the corner or the safety will come up thinking it's a running play to try to hit the, right. hit the fullback, and then when it flows back, the guy's running free. So they ran, and Al says to me, "What do you think of the flea flicker?" And I said. You know, uh, Al, I like the flea flicker, but I don't like it at midfield because even if it works and they bite, they can recover because it's not an endless field at that point. It's sort of like they got to get back. Uh, everybody's a little compressed because there's only 40 yards between you and the end zone, so mm-hmm. even the safeties can get over. And I remember Al looking at me and giving me whatever the equivalent <laughs> yeah, yeah. was, fist tap. And I, I'm not saying it was an earth-shattering E equals MC squared moment, but at least it conveyed that I was trying to think Should of football. Should the kid know some football. So I got a call two days later, and they, you know, I think Omi was in the legacy business, and he wanted to try one last roll of the dice. Uh-huh. And uh, you know, I'm proud of it. I don't know. Yeah, I think he is. Uh, you know, I still see him, and we laugh a lot. But I don't know that I was uh, an ideal fit for a three-man booth because I think I was a little more loquacious than I should have been. Mm-hmm. I remember the only the only two people in the history of the planet I've heard use the term "sword of Damocles" is you <laughs> and and Vince McMahon. Well, he, he used it in a sentence to me once. I said, "That's Dennis Miller's line, sword of Damocles." Well, try to imagine shoehorning. <laughs> I remember there was a team one night that the, the, they had both exchanged a lot of players in front office guy, and I, I remember saying to Al, the, I said, these bloodlines are more muddied than the Plantagenets. And I'm not thinking, well, that's funny to me, but that's funny in my act. I think people at home watching Monday Night Football are saying, what the hell is he talking is about, he, Martha? Is, plant, is that when you get the swollen swollen toe, the plant, Plantagenet fasciitis or whatever? Oh, yeah, Turf toe, right? Yeah, and uh, listen, I had a blast. I don't think I was uh, everybody's dream at it, but some people liked it, and I look back on it. I have no delusions about it that, oh, I got wrong. I got about what I should have. I had two years there. I had a blast. That's great. I would have whacked me for Madden, too, because Mm -hmm. John and Al had a few years together there where it's like Tinker's Devers the Chance, man. Those are the guys. Al's the best play-by-play guy ever in my book, along with Summerall, but I think Al would concede that. And Madden is without a doubt the best color man ever. Uh, you know, and, and I'm not saying you can do it into your 90s. Even John starts to lose his heater. Mm-hmm. But I'm saying for a few years there, 
They were sweet, man. Yeah, that was the team. But once again, you're talking about your stand up, and then you're talking about you know announcing football, hosting. You did a lot of hosting as well. Yeah, I've you know I did the. It's so funny because I, I guess I'm thought of now as a square in some circles. But I look back and <laughs> I did the I did the. I did the MTV Awards two years in a row. Yeah. And uh, I remember one year they did a live hookup with the space station. And they had sent up with the last thing an MTV Moonman Award. And I was supposed to give it to the guy and interview him, the Russian cosmonaut. So I am hooked up like uh, so many wires on me. I've got a, a hard mic and then I've got a backup mic. And then I've got uh, an earpiece that's hooked up to the booth. And then I got an earpiece that's hooked up to the Mir space station. And this one kicks out. The directors are turning you over to the translator now. So I got some <laughs> on live. It's live. There's a billion people watching. I'm not kidding you when you host the MTV Awards after they run it a few times. And kids all, you know, you got to remember in Lapland, this is the biggest night of the year for kids. <laughs> right. they, they, they estimate that all in like a billion people see it. And there's like, what, how many people on the billion? Okay, on yeah, five or six? Yeah. Like, so you're out there live. I remember Eddie, Lee, uh, Eddie Van Halen and Alex Van Halen were down front. I think I, I, and I don't know if Eddie was, but I think Alex was loaded. And uh, he's in the second row. And we're on live, and they got this big screen behind me, and the cosmonauts floating, and they hand them the award. And uh, this year, the, the, the translator here goes, <laughs> you know, that shit, where yeah. you have to rip it out of your Ow. ear. And, uh, you know, I hold it over my ear, and I hear the director say, translator's blown, translator's blown, vamp. <laughs> so I have to look <laughs> And I looked down at Eddie and Alex, and they know, I can tell they know that it's that they've heard the feedback, they're that close, and they're like, <laughs> and I'm on with the guy, so immediately I go to every Russian um, fallback joke you can think of, <laughs> where I go, congratulations, Brebreniev, on the award, and he goes, bah, 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 and I'm supposed to translate now, because they can't hear it, so, uh, uh, you know, I'm saying stuff like, uh, may I unscrew the head and fill this beautiful decanter with Stolichnaya? You know, like doing vodka jokes, breadline <laughs> jokes. <laughs> and you realize in that moment when you're uh, like ink blotting, that you, you, your your perception of another culture is lodged in your, your stupid little uh, compartmentalizations of them where I'm thinking, can't you say something solid? But all I'm thinking is installing killed 10 million and... You're loaded on vodka. Hey, I want some toilet paper. Let me get in this eight-mile line. It's it? all coming out. Give me blue jeans. That's all that comes into your mind. You go down to a base man fall on banana peel thing. <laughs> right. Like right. you're thinking, well, I'll have some wit and raccoon, but too many people, too live. The guy's speaking Russian, and he, he doesn't even know what's happening. So anyway, it was a wild When day. you did the, the, those MTV awards, I mean, you mentioned Aiden Alex laughing. Some of those guys take themselves very seriously. Yeah, I remember the Gallagher kid once uh, from Oasis. It was a very trippy thing where, um, hey, they were great. Mm -hmm. I think yeah. they had just uh, – the, the best thing I ever saw on that show was uh, Billy Corgan and the Smashing Pumpkins did that song tonight. Yeah. Da -da -da, I mean, with an orchestra. Right. He's a freaking genius, yeah. Billy Corgan. I mean, I'm, I'm such a huge fan. And that's the, the thought that sticks with me. I remember Gallagher, I think, did Champagne or 
Gallagher, Oasis and the mm-hmm. Gallagher Brothers. He was a little loaded, and he threw a beer up, and it came down. It shot fizz over him, and the, the kids in the front. And I remember standing off in some side satellite stage where they throw it back to me, and uh, I remember saying, ooh, he spilled a beer, and like them being pissed off. So I go backstage, and the stage manager said, hey, the Gallagher kid wants to see it. And what is more perfect than this? That I go into my little shower stall there, and that's all they have room for backstage is a monitor, and it's literally, I remember, a shower curtain with a chair and uh, one other chair. And I go in, and, you know, those those guys are notorious at that. It's like the Pogues. They're sort of loaded all the time. Yeah. Christ, I have to get into it with this guy. (laughs) I go in, and one of the next presenters is Mike Tyson, who I know a little. And I, all I've asked for in my dressing room is some water and a huge bowl of goldfish, cheddar goldfish, because okay. I like them. And they're it's like a nervous that. thing as you watch the monitor write jokes. And I go in, and Mike Tyson so propitiously is sitting there with my goldfish bowl, just, hey, then, you know, in that voice. And I go, hey, there's somebody coming in here. Named Noel Gallagher, he's pissed in just at that moment. The, the thing opens and Gallagher sticks his head in it. Who, who would scare the f*** out of you more than Mike Tyson? And Tyson goes, he's, hey, no, want some goldfish. And like the whole thing was chilled out at that point. Well, hey, Dennis, my, 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 yeah. hey, Mike. It's just so funny to me that like that all those uh, it's, it's like the synergy at the end of two thousand and one where the the planets the moons and the monolith line up. Yeah. Me afraid drunk English guy who's in my dressing room but Mike Tyson eating goldfish. It just chills the whole thing out. <laughs> then I remember one year I did it and. Uh, I remember meeting Courtney Love, and she was so sweet with me. And listen, I, uh, I've seen enough of Courtney to know that she's a high-strung, mm-hmm. tough dame. I'm sure she's not everybody's cup of tea, but what are you going to do? She's sweet to me that night. So after the show, I go back to my uh, dressing room, and it, it had been a freaky night all along. I remember Joe Pesci was there, and he had come into my dressing room beforehand, and he was giving an award, and he wanted me to write jokes, and he was like Tommy from The Goodfellas. You know, it was like that guy. That was his real yeah, yeah, persona. Not, not, no, not. I had played golf with him since then. And he's the sweetest guy, but he was that kind of night, playing yeah. with me. You know, uh, you know, you're freaked out. That he, hey, I need some jokes. <laughs> you know, it's sort of like, <laughs> you're thinking, Christ, this is surreal. <laughs> so afterwards, I go back to the dressing room and I'm, you know, it, it was a pretty good show. Supposed to go to a party. I can't find my clothes. I feel like somebody's gaslighting me. That old movie where they burn mm-hmm. candles down. I don't know. Make the girl think she's crazy. So Kurt, uh, Kurt, I forget his name. Loader. Yeah, Loader. Yeah. He's sitting on top of a Winnebago outside the, the, the Radio City, or it is is that year. And on top of it, he's got deck chairs, and that's their theme that year. The Apre interviews, and Madonna's sitting there with Courtney Love, and I'm sort of looking for my clothes and. I remember Kurt Loder says, uh, what was your high point tonight? And Courtney Love says, uh, well, I, I met Dennis Miller. I've always been such a fan of Dennis Miller. That was a big thrill for me. And Madonna, she goes, Dennis Miller's an asshole. <laughs> it just reminded me, like, the divergence yeah. of opinion. Like, you're always going to – it was like, oh, that hurts. I just remember laughing, like, how surreal that I'm – and then Madonna said, matter of fact, uh, he's such an asshole. I snuck into his dressing room. And I hit his jeans and his shirt. 
uh, under his sink, way in the back, behind the Drano and stuff. And I'm thinking, this is so trippy. I open the thing, look in, there's my clothes. I'm thinking, I'm getting pranked by Madonna. And it's a good reminder about showbiz that, you know, everybody in it is like comes from not in it. Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah, it's yeah, not yeah. like you come out of the womb and don a red carpet fallopian too. I, I figured out everybody's bluffing to some degree because yeah. we're we're back in high school. It's still Madonna. I don't like him. He's a mean boy. Yeah, Courtney, I like him. He's a nice boy. Yeah, I'm gonna hide his jeans. I just thought, Chris, wait, this is like tall grade school. <laughs> There's a great story when the police uh, reunited that Sting and Stuart Copeland got in a fight the first night, arguing. Sting gets in his limo, drives away, and hangs a moon out the window. To Stewart as they're driving away. Limo stops 20 feet later, gets up, they start laughing. Like, how bad is this? How pretentious are I? I'm hanging a moon from my limo as I drive away in anger. You know? <laughs> Dana Carvey used to do the great joke. He said, Where do you get the balls to come into that card game that first night with kids you grew up with? And he said, Hey, guys. Yeah. What's up, Gordy? Um, can you call me Sting from here on in? <laughs> Shut the up, sit down and deal. Sting my ass. <laughs> did you have a good time with Carvey? Carvey, what a genius. Yeah, I love Dana. He's yeah. uh, the sweetest of men. And to my way of thinking, the best guy who ever did that show. I agree. I've said that before. He's he's the funniest Stone guy in his own history. Yeah, you got oh, Farley and, and yeah. you know, and, and Farrell and Kristen Wiig. But yeah, there's everybody's, listen, when you get into that rarefied air, yeah. you can't pick wrong. But for me... I never saw him blow it. Yeah. I mean, he used to come up to the Weekend Update, and he did a character. You know, people, if they had, like, uh, debris that they didn't quite know where to put in a sketch, they'd get three minutes of update. <laughs> yeah. yeah, throw it in the update. Yeah. And he had it's the Beatles medley of SNL. thing yeah. where he'd go, and we walked away, and we liked it. And it was nothing there. I'm nothing. It was complete smoke and mirrors. Yeah. And before we'd go on, we were so close, and after a while, you get, you're not that nervous anymore. You're yeah, like, just uh, your buds, you, right? you start to think. And I'd say, you know, before we'd go on, I'd say, this is such shit. I can't, how are you going to pull this off? And he's like, you he's like killing it you know you're yeah, like, yeah, yeah. it was just like false braggadocio between us <laughs> like uh double dare or whatever you know yeah and uh he would start killing with the same thing and we liked it and underneath he hit me in the leg you know and i remember once we did a sketch uh called uh, it's a wonderful life uh after the camera stops and Carvey plays Jimmy Stewart. And it was like my plum part all my years there, my favorite part. I played Harry Bailey, his brother. And they had me in a beautiful military outfit. And I had a good haircut. And I've got a white scarf on. And I play that guy who comes in at the end. Stop. I'm wiring so much money to save. You get you off the Stop. And yeah. Carvey's <laughs> I can see his face. He's doing that whole Jimmy Stewart gobsmack thing. He's whole little kid. Jan hooks his Don Razor. What? What? And then that's where the end of the movie happens. But in our thing, Carvey said, well, how did this all happen? And uh, somebody says, it was Mr. Potter. Potter hid the money. He knew where it was. And Carvey goes, well, well, 
well, let's go kick his ass. <laughs> and he puts the kid down, and Lovitz is Mr. Potter. He's in a wheelchair. And we run over to the next set, and Jan and I and Carvey, I say to Carvey before we go in, I go, let's beat the hell out of John. Let's beat him up, really, on live <laughs> yeah. TV. So Carvey knocks him out of the chair, and I'm hitting John. He's like, Craig, what are you doing? Take it easy. <laughs> and I always watch that sketch, and they don't have us mic'd. They have Carvey mic'd. You can hear him, but we're hitting Jan. Jan's kicking him. <laughs> Just good old-fashioned good times, oh, man. Oh, when you look back on those, I mean, how lucky are you? Mm-hmm. I mean, jeez, I was I was never in that. When I was a kid, I used to watch managers go out and talk to pitchers, and you always think, that must be cool to be in the center of that. Yeah. And I don't have a lot of them, but when you look back on that, I'll always be able to say, hey, I mean, I want in my... 30s or late 20s, I was on SNL, and I know what they're saying under their breath. Yeah. I feel very blessed, man. It's very, very lucky to be uh, have that gig. Just uh, winding down, I know you guys got a hot date, but um, you, you, you still go out with... Uh, looking beautiful. She looks great. She's actually a, a, a video vixen, I, I, I found out. Wrestling. Yeah? Wrestling. Oh, yeah. No. Uh, Kajagugu. Kajagugu. Was that, was that from Too Shy? Yeah. The famous Kajagugu video. Did Dennis I get is, lucky? Dennis Miller married <laughs> yeah. the two shy girl. You kind of had that hair back then, though, the big wavy hair. She had the cool hair. Yeah. I remember watching that bit. <laughs> did you, um, how, how'd you meet her then? Um, you know, I was in Catch a Rising Star one night, and uh, I, I was standing in the bar area talking to a cat named Ronnie Shakes, I remember. And he has passed since. He always had my favorite joke about the road. He's, and you know this feeling. from. And how much time do we have? Oh, we're, we're, yeah, we're winding down. So okay. whatever you want uh, He always does the best. You, you know how the road takes on a sameness. And he used to say, the road's it's always the same. He's like, I remember I was in the uh, Marriott at the uh, Newark Airport. And I had a gig the next day in St. Louis. And he's like, I was clipping my toenails at the edge of the bed in the Marriott at uh, Newark and one flew off into the rug I couldn't find it I got on my plane I went to St. Louis I checked into the Marriott St. Louis I sat at the edge of the bed to take my shoes off I found a toenail it fit <laughs> but I was talking to Ronnie I'm sorry that joke just popped in my head it was such a beautifully crafted joke yeah. when he when he would get to it fit that used to kill me and my wife walked by and i thought she was the most you know at first obviously yeah. you're running on olfactory i just thought that's the most beautiful woman i've ever seen <laughs> so uh i said ronnie hold and i followed her and she was with two friends male friends i didn't know what the drill was mm-hmm. but i just walked out onto the street and it was just raining a little and um she had been lived in england for a long time so she had a british accent there you know um, she was an irish girl and yeah you know when you come from living somewhere for eight years you and yeah I, so i off. hear the accent and then i hear her say to her friends what should we do now and uh i thought man i'm never gonna see her again i had that moment where i thought it's gonna be like that guy in citizen kane who says i saw a girl on the subway and i never talked and then you know there isn't a day that goes by i don't think about <laughs> yeah. her right mr bernstein mm-hmm. so i thought i stepped in and i said um what should we do and i said well why don't you, uh, why don't i buy you guys a drink and she's they looked at me and i said well i can hear your accent you're out of time I said, just trying to be a good new yorker i'll take you and buy you a cocktail and 
the one guy split. It's a longer story about who he was. But the other guy was Lamal, the lead singer for Kajagoogle. Ah. And I didn't know them at that point. I didn't know if it was their bow or anything. Mm-hmm. So I took them at a great place called the Columbus Cafe, which is a real New York hang. And uh, it was on the west side. And I bought them a cocktail, and then he went to the loo. And I said, is that your boyfriend? And she said, no, he's a friend. And I said, well, uh, I won't. I won't be as bold to ask somebody as beautiful to you to his dinner, but can I take you to lunch? <laughs> and I think we had a few lunch dates as friends and that. And then just, uh, I'm telling you, Chris, if you can make a woman laugh, you, you can, That's the way, you can right? be overmatched in a lot of ways. But they're looking for somebody who can make the personality the long run laugh wise. Last question for you, and, and, and this is not a political question. This is almost a show business question. What do you think of of Donald Trump um, with what he's done so far? Well, I think he's a great catalytic factor right now. now yeah. I don't know what's going to happen, but I do know that politics has turned into by rote bullshit. Everybody's Bingo. bullshitter. I'm glad somebody threw some sort. Of, I always think of it that drink you had when you were a kid called fizzies, where you throw it into the water and pssst, yeah, it's all pssst right now. He's forcing other people to say what they think about certain things. Uh, do I like it when Trump says about Carly Fiorina, look at that face? No, I, I go, mm. geez, come on, man. This, it's, it's too rough. But do I agree with him when he says, if you don't have a border, you don't have a country? Yeah, that's 101 to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I'm, I'm for anybody coming here. It's what America's about. Sign the guest book on the way in. So does he always put it exactly as I would? No. But do I trust Iran as far as I can throw? Are you kidding me? Of course I don't. Mm -hmm. I think it's crazy. When he says, that's a crazy deal. That's the worst contract I've ever seen. And when Netanyahu says that, do I dig that? Because I think it's crazy that we're in bed now with Iran and not Israel. Yeah, I think it's crazy. So... Uh, do I think he's going to be the next president? I don't know. I can't rule it out. Mm-hmm. And there's other guys I like. I think Ben Carson's a very dignified, uh, brilliant guy. But, you know, I'm not as religious as he is. I think Marco Rubio, hard scrabble kid whose mom was a, uh, you know, a, a housekeeper in a Vegas. You know, he's the American dream to me. Plus, he has the Hispanic thing. There's a few guys I like. There, the Bushes are the most decent people in the world. But I'm not sure he's willing to fight. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? I, they're the sweetest people. I, I think they're great Americans, uh, great contributors to this country. But, man, sometimes I look at Jeb and I think, I, I don't know if he's ready to swing from the, the heels. Say this about Trump. If you're going to take him out, he's going he's gonna to fight you. I yeah. mean, and I think, look, Biden got the message. I'm sure they sent the word out to him through Hillary, we'll destroy you. Mm-hmm. I think if they send the word to Trump that we'll destroy you, He'll say, yeah, you heard what he said the other day. It made me laugh. He said, I hope I run against Hillary. It's such a crap record. It ought to be easy. <laughs> now, do I find that intoxicating in the button-down world of politics? Yeah, I do. I like the candor of it. Do I think he'll be the next president? No idea. Would I vote for him if it came down to him or Hillary Clinton? In a shot. Mm. In a second, I mm-hmm. would. I'm not a Hillary fan. I, I agree with you in the fact that he's really become – he's Ali. He's talking smack to people, and they don't know what to do, and people love that. For the first time, it's not the button-down suit-and-tie guy. It's crazy Trump wearing a red baseball yeah. cap. You know, talking. Right now, I like the catalytic factor right. of it. I find it cathartic. I don't know where it'll lead, and at some point, he's going to have to nail down some positions. Yes. 
But is there, like when I watch George Pataki, do I think, oh, I'd rather have a serious mail? You know those half-inflated Dilbert balloons outside a car dealership on sale day? That has a better chance than Pataki (laughs) does of being the next president. Do I want to go down swinging this time? Yeah, I'd rather go down swinging than have Mitt Romney, one of the sweetest best men in the world. But he wasn't going to fight. He wouldn't go past a certain point. McCain wouldn't go past a certain point. That's getting tired to me because they'll go past that point in a second. Hillary's the the stick in the eye to people like me who are kind of pragmatic conservatives. I'm not a zealot conservative. Uh, You know, I believe in choice. It's people's business. Gay marriage, I'm all for it. I have friends I adore who are married. Uh, I'd like to keep half my money and kill the bad guys. And so I think of myself as a pragmatist. I'm getting sick of them painting me like I'm the nutter. This seems like common sense stuff to me. And if you're going to tell me, no, no, we're going to end up friends with Iran and not Israel, I'm going to say, well, check. I'm not involved with you anymore. I'm going over here. And if that's where Trump is, fine. There you are. Dennis, it's great talking You're good to you, cat, man. Christopher. Thank you, man. Thanks Hopefully our show done. gets picked up. And, uh, we I hope so, man, because uh, we, uh, we had a blast together. ET phone agent. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, it was a little run. Down. It was hot. It was after lunch. Was the Cubs were playing. <laughs> what an amazing way to celebrate episode 200 of Talk is Jericho. I can't think of a better guest than the always funny Dennis Miller and great candid stories he gave me too. What it was like at Sunday Night Live and Monday Night Football. And, and once again, like I said, Dennis really went out of his way to uh, make this interview happen. We met up in Malibu, like I said, on the beach at the boardroom. And um, he doesn't do a lot of interviews anymore. He's not interested in it. He wants to just kind of hang out with his family and not work very much. When I first asked him if he wanted to do the podcast, he said, nah, it's too much like work. And they said, actually, you know what? I'd like to do your podcast. So thanks to Dennis for coming on and Larry King and Chris Hardwick and Corolla. Uh, you're a little bit jealous, aren't you? Well, too bad. You missed out on that one. I got Dennis and you didn't. That was episode 200 of Talk is Jericho. Thanks to all of you for listening, whether it's been one episode or 200. I appreciate it. Couldn't do it without you and couldn't do it without the amazing Talk is Jericho sponsors. And thanks for supporting them all. They're the ones who let me do this for you for free for twice a week. And that includes Amazon. They've been here since day one. It's the easiest way to support this show. I know you guys are starting to do your online shopping for the holidays. So please remember to use the Talk is Jericho Amazon links. Won't cost you anything extra. You don't have to buy anything special. No extra fees or hidden charges. You just go to podcastone.com and you click on the killer deals button at the top of the page. Eh? Then you hit the talk is Jericho button. All right. I got the links in the UK, the USA and the Canada. A, eh? And I'm going to keep on rocking them for you. All right. You can hear my voice. It's a little strained. We've done 15 gigs in 17 days. Got a day after tonight. We're down to the nittiest of greatest. Okay. Uh, on the uh, cinder block party tour. It's been so much fun. Nonpoint and Sumo Psycho. Great support bands. It's been such a good package. Thanks to all of you who have come out. We've had some great crowds over the last 15, 16, 17 shows. And we're getting down to the end of it. We're getting down to the wire, man. We're in Cambridge tonight. That's Wednesday, December 2nd. Then we're heading to Newcastle on Thursday. Nottingham Friday. we got uh, Sheffield with uh, the Temperance Movement on Saturday at the Corporation. Then Treco Bay, Wales. That's uh, winter, winter stock, I believe it is. And that's with the darkness. Justin Hawkins, who is a Talk is Jericho alumni. The Darkness and Fozzie in Treco Bay, Wales. FozzieRock.com, all the cities, venues, ticket information, last-minute VIP. Don't miss out on that. We do a, uh, a private concert for our VIPs, and we've been playing some songs that we've never played before, like You Really Got Me and Cold Gin and Whole Lot of Rosie. 
and uh, those type of tunes, plus older ones that we haven't played in a while, like Balls to the Wall, Martyr No More, Brides of Fire. So if you like, uh, you, and plus you request the songs, the other songs that we play, Enemy, Lights Go Out, Sandpaper, whatever you want to hear, we play it for you. Go to fazerock.com and check that out. So thanks to you guys for listening. Thanks to my sponsors, DDP Yoga. Uh, once again, tweet your DDP Yoga story to Talk is Jericho on the Twitter for a chance to win a DDP Yoga program signed by Diamond Dallas Page. Thanks to DraftKings once again as well. Use my promo code Y2J to play for free and Uber. Go drive with Uber and make some easy money. And hey, stay tuned for the 60-second AP News headlines coming up next and coming up Friday. Got a lot of requests for her. She's redheaded. She's Irish. She's one of the top WWE divas. She's Becky Lynch. She's going to be here. What a week. The 200 Celebration Week, episode 201, Becky Lynch, this Friday on Talk is Jericho. Thank you, guys. You know I love you. Stay hard. Stay hungry. Peace, love, and hugs. And as always, give boy. You can download new episodes of Talk is Jericho every Wednesday and Friday at podcastone.com. That's podcastone.com. 